And Tony, I'm crudely aware that I'm here to replace a very dear friend, Jean-Pierre Lehmann, uh, a, a colleague from IMD who died on December 21st, and he was a friend of several of you in the audience. So, carpe diem. I will seize the day by a few brief remarks on China, which is my topic these days. My recent book was on innovation in China. I strongly believe that uh, barring major mishap, uh, China will become, within a short number of years, a major source <coughs> of innovation for the world. It's already happening in many ways, and I'm going to try to tell you about it. Uh, so I want to, uh, well, I uh, want to remember you and the wonderful video that uh, Tony produced with you on China rising and rising again. We should not forget that uh, around 1800, China was a major trading uh, power in the world. So what's going on now is really recovering and becoming again a major power in the world. And it's certainly very present in the Chinese uh, minds. And the speed at which this is happening is incredible. Look at these uh, statistics. So I want to talk briefly about two ways in which China is reaching the world. One is through innovation, which is my pet subject. Not only technical innovation, but uh, technology is certainly a very important uh, source of innovation. And the second one, and you're very familiar with this uh, so-called OBOR, uh, I much prefer the New Silk Road initiative name, it's much more evocative, which is in itself a very innovative and bold initiative. I wish the West would have come up with such a bold initiative. Why is China so innovative already now? Well, I think uh, an incredibly entrepreneurial energy among the people. I really don't understand where it comes from, but it's just amazing to see. Uh, the un uncanny ability of the Chinese entrepreneurs to, s to make money and to extract value of an activity is just mind-boggling. They don't care about technology, uh, they're very respectful of technology, but for them, relentless market and business orientation is key. The competition within China is absolutely brutal, and, uh, and at the same time, the Chinese entrepreneurs and the country have shown an uncanny ability to absorb knowledge from the outside at breakneck speed and incredibly uh, effective way, in an incredibly effective way. So the patterns of innovation as they have happened and as I believe they will continue to happen is a, a fantastic ability to look at what's going on uh, adapt it and improve it. They've done a lot of that in the past, especially being inspired by uh, American offerings. But they go well beyond that. It's not, we're not talking about counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is, of course, a big activity of China. 90% of counterfeited goods are Chinese. The second one is Turkey, by the way. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about uh, activity where you look at an object, you look at an initiative, you look at an offering, you take it apart, and you improve it, you make it cheaper, you make it Chinese, and you make it relevant to your market in an incredibly effective way. And you innovate a lot in that process. The second one, which was very surprising to me, was this meta-innovation phrase, uh, just for lack of a better word. I meant by that that uh, I was very surprised to see, uh, in the Shenzhen area especially, 
a, a very strong collaboration between competing suppliers, uh, very much like what you see in uh, northern Italy, in the district, uh, but incredibly uh, vibrant, agile, uh, simple uh, way of collaborating and uh, providing innovation to the to the uh, to the to the manufacturers. For example, Xiaomi, the number one of the key producers of handsets, is not producing any handset themselves. Uh, Xiaomi relies completely on suppliers and play very cleverly on this uh, very vibrant world of collaboration. By the way, Shenzhen is an incredible place. Uh, compared, to, uh, uh, compared to Shenzhen, Silicon Valley is a very sleepy suburb. Shenzhen is absolutely incredible. For example, you have 2,000 2, companies working on robots, producing robots. You have a factory, Foxconn, which has 120,000 employees. They produce basically all the cell phones in the world. But also in Shenzhen, you have a dark factory. That means a factory where you go, come in and you don't see anything. There is a hole of one kilometer long. There is nobody in sight. And as a result, you don't need light. So that everything is computerized. Everything is robotized. Just absolutely incredible place, Shenzhen. Uh, a third element which is critical uh, and very coherent and sustained is a very strong support from the government, from the leadership. Mr. Xi and uh, Mr. the Prime Minister go around the country talking about how important innovation is, about entrepreneurship, about Chinese have to create their own jobs, etc. And they, they've been doing that for years and they continue in a very consistent way. And also the policies. The, the governments are obsessed about supporting innovation at every level, uh, federal, state, municipality. Uh, everybody is aligned on these policy objectives. Of course, it's more or less effective, more or less uh, uh, flaky, but they're always absolutely obsessed with improving what policies they have now in order to support innovation better. The last point is a very interesting one. Indigenous innovation sounds good, favoring Chinese innovation, but it's also a very clever way to be protectionist. It's a way to protect the Chinese champions from foreign competition for the time it takes for the Chinese companies to develop a strong position. And it's a, it's a very nice phrase for protectionism in many ways. At the end, you have a, an incredible situation which is very volatile, and I see that uh, what we're going to see in, in, uh, in China is a pattern that we see in the West also, but very brief successes. There will be such a strong innovation, such a strong uh, rate of change that every offering will have a very short lifetime. And therefore, I talk about puffs of commercial success, which also means very rambunctious times for businesses and their survival. Uh, I want to say already that China is the leader in the internet world, by far. I uh, don't want to go through this. We know all don't know Alibaba, but the interesting thing is you have uh, behind Alibaba, you have JD, Yodian. Uh, by the way, JD sells my book in, in Mandarin. <laughs> it's it's very interesting. Very much better to buy it in Chinese, much cheaper. Uh, but but th there, are many, there are many second uh, players which are really very powerful in online uh, buying. 
And of course, that drives uh, the last point, which is fintech. As, as soon as you have clients buying online, you're tempted to do online uh, financing, etc. And Shanghai is the capital of the world for fintech. Uh, which is a very broad, fuzzy concept to talk about how information technology can automatize and make it cheaper to uh, provide financial services. Uh, I mentioned Xiaomi, the third bullet, uh, everything is outsourced. Uh, they, they provide an incredible model uh, for the world for the, the clever use of internet technology and information technology. For example, uh, we all uh, know about the, uh, the, the, the self-service um, uh, uh, bicycle in most countries. It started in my hometown in Lyon and then it spread everywhere. In China, you don't bother with these racks and computer. You have a cell phone and you free a, a pink uh, bicycle which is on the sidewalk standing there. You free it, you, make, you have access to it and you ride it. You have no need to have a uh, infrastructure, internet, you use your cell phone as a key to have access to uh, an electric bike or a bicycle bike, a pedaling bike. So very simple, clever, again it goes back to these ways of very, being very clever at uh, capturing value out of uh, an activity. So uh, I want to conclude this little part with two names, you, you, you're all familiar with Huawei, which is a uh, uh, leader in uh, ICT equipment. Uh, they don't play by the rules, but who plays by the rules anyway? They are highly subsidized by the, the, the Chinese government and a really very aggressive leader, and very present in Europe as we well know, cutting market shares to Ericsson and Alcatel-Lucent is already gone in the, the boondocks for a long time, but uh, Ericsson is the last one to, to resist and it's not going to resist very long, I think. Uh, the, the one, the company that really has a lot of my admiration is Tencent. We're back to Shenzhen. Created by this guy who was born in Shenzhen, educated in Shenzhen, uh, Mr. Pony Wadong, and this company is absolutely mind-boggling. It's coming up with cellular phone applications which are extremely clever and user-friendly. And WeChat is the, uh, the, the kind of a typical brand, but QQ is instant imaging, musing, gaming, etc. Already 500 million Chinese use their cell phones for most of their financial transactions and purchases. Uh, this company is absolutely incredible and they claim that uh, they don't believe in business schools, they don't believe in media, they don't believe in advertising. It's true, it's a pretty... Do you, did you know Stencent as a name? No. Who, who did? Okay, not too many people. This is an incredibly powerful company. And it's, it's moving into uh, Europe in a modest way, uh, basically to serve Chinese tourists in Europe. Um, so the second item is this new Silk Road, so-called Obor, but Obor is not used by the Chinese anymore because they realize that it doesn't describe the thing. One belt, one road doesn't really, number one, it's pretty silly as an expression. Number two, uh, it doesn't describe the complexity and the fuzziness of the initiative. So now they use the word BRI, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which concerns 65 countries. You saw the previous map, which was from The Economist, but nobody has a good map of uh, this initiative. It's such an incredible uh, 
a project. It's not a project. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tsunami. Uh, interestingly enough, Pakistan is one of the first key big beneficiary of the Silk Road Initiative. Look at this number. $45 billion are going to be invested in 10 years by China, by this initiative, within the next, next coming 10 years. And if you talk to anybody in Pakistan, they're extremely uh, grateful and happy about that. Uh, of course, Pakistan has been already a very major market for, for China for a long time. But uh, Pakistan expects to have 2 million jobs created as a result of this uh, income. So it's infrastructure projects for the time being, already well in place. Uh, you have uh, major roads and major uh, TGV lines uh, built already. Uh, we should not forget that um, part of the idea of the Silk Road Initiative is not only to concern the 65 countries, but to take out the western part of China out of the Middle Ages and connect it with the world. Um, and we should not forget that this is a lot of businesses for you guys, both as, as, as countries and as, of course, as, business, as companies. First, for, to build infrastructure, and second, later on, to provide, to use this, uh, this, uh, this uh, vehicle, this uh, vector of the New Silk Road to trade increasingly with China. Um, to me, this is the most, political, most ge biggest geopolitical uh, event since, since the Berlin Wall, or together with the Berlin Wall since w uh, the end of World War II. It's going to be interesting how it's, uh, how it's played out and how corruption will, uh, uh, will kind of might muddy the waters. When you talk about Pakistan and China, you're beginning to worry about things. Uh, but uh, we could be very grateful to China if they come to invent a third way between colonialism and economic imperialism. If they find a third way which is uh, based on trade, not on conquering, but just on respectfully, mutually beneficial uh, 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 trade, which is, has been the pattern of, of of China in the past. China has sent a lot of shipping expeditions in the world. You never saw a Chinese coming on an island and take the flag and said, I'm taking possession of this in the name of the emperor. Chinese never did that. All they were interested in were to come to a place to trade. That's what they do in, in Africa. So I don't believe they're going to be colonialists. Uh, so if they find a third way, that's going to be very interesting to watch and we can be very grateful to China for this innovation if they come to succeed in it. So we have a problem because we are crassly ignorant about China in the West. We are a bit racist about it. We made a lot of mistakes about underestimating Japan and then about Korea, but Korea is a small economy, so it's no big deal. Now we have a big elephant to deal with, and we better deal, it, deal with it uh, uh, responsibly. The Chinese have to do their part, but so far, by and large, they have, accept, they have behaved fairly responsibly. So it's up to us to, do, to be a bit less lazy, and understand better what's going on in China, and respectfully treat China as an equal, which is badly what they want. But, uh, Ch Chinese res um, remember the Opium Wars like it was yesterday. You were talking about Poland, but it's the same for the Opium Wars, in, uh, which was an incredible event if you think about it. Uh, uh, so we, we have to learn about history. We have to be a little bit more uh, 
proactive about understanding China. Hopefully, they will do the same about us. Uh, maybe, maybe it's allowed to, to be hopeful about the future. In, a, in the meantime, we certainly should learn about China because those guys are doing what we preach. Speed and agility in business, market orientation, customer orientation. Uh, uh, this third one is very un unusual, but they are extremely good at it. I wish again, uh, the, we, we had in the West, had had a big and bold initiative just like the Brie. And it raises also the issue uh, that has been uh, underlying the populist democratic situation, the role of governments and the effectiveness of their leaders. Maybe we can learn a, a lesson from China as well. Thank you and have a good lunch.